Good to be sharing God's word with you again. Turn with me to Second Corinthians. Second, sorry, not Corinthians. Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Chapter seven. We'll read from verse eleven. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 11. Read with me. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. And all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he prosperously effected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land." Let's, uh, let's bring these things to the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your grace. Father, we indeed need much of it. And we pray for more grace this morning. We pray for grace to understand your word. We pray for grace to be able to live the lives that you would have us live, to overcome um, the one who comes against us, the one who was against you. Father, we pray that our hearts would be focused on you right now that our minds would be set on your things, on your word. Father, give us your understanding. Give us your wisdom. I pray that the Spirit will be moving in every heart right now, that we might come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ in our lives. We might grow into a deeper relationship with him so that our hearts would be full of joy, that we would be set with feet upon a rock. And Father, that we would go out of this place with much boldness to share the word and to live the truth that we have learned. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many places in the Old Testament, especially in Chronicles. You've spent much time in Chronicles. You'll know that there are many battles. So if you spent time in Chronicles or Kings or Samuel, you'll know that there are many battles that, that Israel went through where in some cases they were in, in completely dire straits and they didn't know which way to turn. But when they turned to the Lord, when they, the Bible says they, they would humble themselves, or they humbled themselves in the midst of an absolutely hopeless situation, God saves them. God goes before us truly in battle. As I've mentioned a number of times now, even though we look around and we see this relatively peaceful place right now, and we look to the people to the left and the right and we're all nice and quiet, there is a battle that rages even now that we can't see and we can't hear. But God does. There are forces at work which seek to tear down the things that God is building up. There are forces at work which would seek to divide where God is brought together. So my challenge to you as we close this, this, these three days of this conference is that you would understand and you would appreciate 
the situation that you and we all are in. And that we would indeed make use of this time that God has given us because there isn't much of it. Uh, if you consider the amount of time we have in our own lives to affect the things that God would have us do, that we would understand that truly there isn't much time. And that we wouldn't consume our lives with the love and the cares of this world, as Brother Eddie just prayed, that we would hold on very loosely to the things of this world, because in the end they're all going. There are only, there are only um, actually nothing will remain. The Bible says there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and only the things that we do for the Lord, only the, the things where God has prepared before us to walk in, are the things that will last in all of eternity. And sometimes we don't know what those things are. We had a good chat with someone yesterday, and uh, and the Bible is very simple. <coughs> we tend to complicate it. How do I? When do I? Um, should I? Shouldn't I? Um, what about that lightning bolt that, that's meant to come from the sky about whether I go here, there, or anywhere? And some of the Bible is very simple. Trust and obey. Trust Jesus Christ. If you've trusted him for your salvation, you can trust him for every area of your life. And obey. He has given us commands to follow. And they're there for a very specific reason. When you're in, when you're in, a, a, when you're in a, uh, an army... If you don't obey what the captain in front is telling you, the army goes in all different directions. And you can't fight effectively. Jesus tells us to obey. And obey simply. Trust his word. Trust in who, he's, who he is and what he's done. And we will find that our lives are much more useful for God. So this morning, I'm going to wrap up this theme of putting on the whole armour of God. My preaching, as you well know by now, for the last three months, has been about Satan, about helping us to understand who our enemy is, how he came to be, what are his goals, how he works, and what schemes and devices he uses, he uses to help tear apart God's church, and how he seeks to destroy our families, our marriages, our testimonies, our own lives, how he keeps the world trapped in darkness. And how we are the only ones in this world that God has called to be ambassadors who carry the light of the truth in a place that is absolutely in darkness. Absolutely bound. Who doesn't see that it's actually going in one direction that's about to fall off a cliff. But we're here. And some of us are waving our arms around and saying, Hey, don't go to that edge. Don't go to the cliff. Turn around while you have time. But there are some of us who aren't waving any, any arms and aren't making any noise while the people around us are falling into a terrible eternity. There is a war that's going on for the hearts and the souls of men. I want to wrap up this conference with a theme. And the theme is one of a victorious note. Even though there is a battle, there is a victory that has been won. And Jesus has won an, an amazing victory and always goes before us to fight. I've heard many times you know, people say, but Jesus has won the victory. What does that actually mean? 
If Jesus won the victory, you might well ask, why are we still fighting? Why do we have to put on armour? Why does a devil uh, roam around like a roaring lion if Jesus won a victory? Well, Jesus won the victory. You see, in every war that persists for a long time, and this war has persisted for about 6,000 years, okay? In any war, there there comes a point where there is a decisive victory. There is a decisive battle that takes place that completely cripples the next the other, uh, the enemy or the opponent. But they aren't necessarily done yet, if you understand what I'm saying. So, during the Second World War and First World War, there were decisive victories that even though they won that particular battle, there were many other battles that were still raging, but that battle broke the back of the enemy. And they knew that within a short amount of time, that enemy would, would capitulate. Jesus won the victory against Satan, the decisive victory when he died on the cross and rose again from the grave. But the devil is now defeated, though defeated, still seeks as, as, as long as he can and as hard as he can to kill as many as he can. I've been reading a little bit about the, um, the uh, Auschwitz and, and, and the way the Germans managed to slaughter so many people in a short amount of time. But as the, uh, as the Allies were getting closer and closer to Germany, the killing didn't slow down. The killing actually increased. It went faster. The enemy knows he is in the last days, but he isn't slowing down. He wants to take as many as he possibly can out with him. He wants to clean up as much as he possibly can. So Jesus has won the victory, but we are still in the midst of a battle. We are still in the midst of the war. And our enemy, though invisible, intelligent and powerful, is no match for our king. Our king has defeated him. And our king will one day call us home, but will also one day come back to this place and completely destroy our enemy. Today I'm going to talk us through a particular event that occurred in Israel's past. And there are many battles that I could have chosen, but this one seems right on the mark when it comes to how the enemy um, approached um, Israel, how they taunted them and how the devil does the same to us. And as we read through this account, I'm going to let the scriptures do most of the talking. I'm not going to do much, much of the talking apart from explaining what most of, these, what most of the, uh, the things are. But today we'll see an event which mirrors very nicely the battle that we see ourselves in. But it also declares that if we would humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our sin, the Bible says and God promises that God will hear us from heaven. He will give us the victory. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 18. Second Kings chapter 18.
Now let me give you a quick, um, a quick um, explanation or background to this story. We're starting, we'll be reading from verse 28. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 28. Israel has been divided into two. Israel is no longer one country, but has become has split into north and south. The major or dominant player in the world, the superpower, you would call them, is Assyria. The king of Assyria is Sennacherib. Sennacherib is all, already destroyed and overtaken many other countries around him. Nineveh is his capital, and he, wherever the, the Assyrian army goes, they put fear and dread into the hearts of the people. The northern kingdom has already been taken. The southern kingdom of Judah, which contains Jerusalem, has already suffered a number of, of battles and they've lost a number of outlying um, cities. Jerusalem is there and it's, it's a walled city. It's got a wall completely around it. The king is King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah is a good king. There aren't many kings you could say that about uh, Israel or Judah. Overwhelmingly, they were a bad bunch, one after the other. Hezekiah is a good king. There is a fellow, that's Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sends to the wall of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem shut up. And Sennacherib sends the captain of his guard. His name is Rabshakeh. So this guy comes to the, to the wall of Jerusalem and all of Jerusalem shut up behind this wall. Gates are locked. The people are standing on the wall watching this guy with his contingent. He has at least an army of about 180,000 soldiers behind him. It's a pretty scary situation. Walled cities were good. Yeah, the old, the old cities were built with walls around them for a reason, and that was to to keep out the bad guys, right? To protect you when it was when it came time to you know when when opposition came to you. In some ways they were good, in some ways they were actually bad. Because armies, if they were big enough, could actually surround you and lay a siege against you, and that would mean you can't come in. You can't get out. Which means if they can hold out long enough, they will starve you out. Because you can't go out to your fields, you can't grow food, you can't get out for water, you can't get out and do anything. So Israel, sorry, Judah and Jerusalem were locked in. With an army facing them, they had... Absolutely no chance of, of defeating. Then Rabshakeh comes to the wall. Have a look what he says in verse 28. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. And this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. 
Hearken not to Hezekiah. For thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me. And then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one of the waters of your cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of oil, of oil, olive, and of honey, that you may live and not die, and hearken not to Hezekiah when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of, the, of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvan, Hena and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who were they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, Answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Let me just quickly recap what we've just read. So Sennacherib has taken the northern tribes of Israel away completely. And he wanted to say to Jerusalem, he's basically saying to them, come out, make a deal with me, give up now. I'll let you live for a while in peace and harmony with us, but I'm going to come back and take you away as well. And I'm going to take you to my country. You're going to live over there. Hezekiah had sought some sort of alliance with Egypt. Egypt was trying to resist the Assyrians. And they wasn't doing a good job. And they weren't coming to save Israel at this particular point. Hezekiah had also given much of the gold to, um, to the Assyrians. They asked him and they demanded a tax. So he gave them a heap of gold. But they still came and they wanted to take the people away as well. That's why they find themselves shut up in the city. So, this Rabshakeh, who represents the, the army of the Assyrians, comes to the wall and speaks, interestingly enough, in the Jews' own language. He could have spoken in Assyrian. He didn't. He wanted everyone on that wall to hear what he had to say. He didn't want just the king's representatives to understand. He wanted every person on that wall, every Jew, to understand what he was saying in order to strike fear in their hearts. And he declares boldly that the king's not, your king's not going to be able to save you. Don't listen to what he's got to say. He also warned them not to listen to Hezekiah, that God would save them. See in your Bibles where it has Lord? You notice that that word Lord is the name of God. He knew the name of God. This is Syrian. And he knew the name of the God, which was Jehovah, and he pronounced it in front, of the, in front of the Jews and said, your God can't save you. In fact, no other gods have been able to save any other country. All, or every one of them have fallen. So don't think your God is going to come and save you either. So he urges a surrender with an oath and you let them live until the time that he comes to take them away into exile.
Interesting enough that when the people of Jerusalem heard these words in their own language, they didn't respond at all. The king had already said to them, don't respond. Don't give them any feedback. But the three men who the king had assigned to be his representatives, to come back and, uh, and, and let him know what's going on, came back and it says their, their clothes were rent. Now when they came back to their king with their clothes ripped like that, the king already knew before they even said a word what was going on. Yesterday we looked at the attacks that the devil brings to us as children of God. And there were two main ways he attacks the children of God, and that is through discouragement and doubt. Discouragement and doubt, and that's a circle that keeps on going around. With discouragement, he will continue to poke and prod and get you to focus on the things that you don't have. You'll focus on your health, your job, your money, uh, people, that, people around you, bad relationships, anything that goes wrong. If he can get you focused on everything that's wrong around you, he can get your eyes off God. And you can get your eyes off trusting in God because you're going to try and fix them in your own strength. And while he's doing that, he'll cause doubt in your mind. Because if you go through difficult times, the first thing the devil's going to try and get into your mind when you become discouraged is, why am I going through this discouragement? Why are things so bad for me? So you'll begin to doubt God's love for you. You'll begin to doubt God's grace. You'll begin to doubt that God can answer any of your prayers because you've been praying for long enough and you're saying, God, how long do I have to pray? So the devil will cause doubt in your mind. When the enemy attacks, he will try, as Rabshakeh did, to discourage you and make you feel absolutely helpless. He will speak to you in a way that will, that will bring fear into your life. He will tell you that Jesus can't help you now. He doesn't care about you. He's not listening to your prayers because you're a sinner. He doesn't love you anymore. He abandoned you a long time ago. best thing for you to do now the enemy will say is to give up to surrender surrender to either fighting anymore don't fight me anymore it's not worth it look if you capitulate if you just surrender surrender to this thought surrender to this temptation look i'll give you some pleasure for a while you can relax you can enjoy it you can take it easy. Look, it's so much easier to do it this way. Just give in. But behind that temptation is something else because later on he's going to come and want to take you away. Sin and giving in to the devil is pleasurable for a season. Please, don't ever think that sin is not pleasurable. If it wasn't pleasurable then why, are people, why would people be so tempted by it? The devil tempts with pleasure. He tempts with things to give you instant gratification. But the instant gratification has consequences down the road. And just as Rabshakeh came and said, just give in, let's make a deal. You can enjoy your, 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 your vineyard, you can enjoy all the stuff you can, but later on I'm going to come and take you away. The devil does exactly the same. So the three men get back to the king and they report exactly what this...
fellow came and told them. The movie we watched on Friday night had one major theme throughout it. That in all times, and at all times, especially during the attacks from Satan, there is one thing that you and I need to do, and that is bring it to Jesus. These three men knew where they had to go. These three men knew this is the attack that's been brought upon us. We're going to bring it straight to our king and let him know. You know, when you go through difficult times in your life, when you feel like you're under attack, when you feel as if you can't win this battle, there is one place you should bring it. And that's to your king. The king has the answers. Your king knows how to defeat the devil. Hezekiah was just a a worldly king, but we worship a heavenly king and we follow him. And if you have confidence in him, if you really believe that he was able to live his entire life without committing one sin, never having given in to the devil, if you really believe that he went to the cross for your sins and he rose again on the third day, the only man in history to defeat death, then tell me, do you not trust him now to defeat the devil who's coming against you? Can he help you with this? The first thing you need to do is to bring it to your king. Don't get into a conversation with the devil. Don't bother. Bring it to your king. Now we're going to see how King Hezekiah responds. Chapter 19, verse 1. And it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy. For the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. It may be the Lord thy God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, hath sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which, which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left. The first thing Hezekiah does, he goes straight to God himself. Does the same thing. He goes straight into the house of the Lord. He sends a contingent straight to Isaiah. And you know who Isaiah was? The same Isaiah that wrote the book of Isaiah. And why did he send, it, send him the, those people there and he covered themselves in sackcloth? First of all, they humbled themselves before God. Because, you know, when you put on sackcloth, it's not very nice clothes, okay? What you're saying is, God, I have nothing before you. I am nothing before you. I need you to save me. So he sends these men and the, these, uh, this contingent across to Isaiah and says, Isaiah, please pray for us. This is a bad day. There's nothing we can do. It says here, and it's interesting the way he puts it, for the children to come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. In other words, we're in a position where something has to happen, but we've got no strength to do anything. We can't do it. So he says, maybe the Lord has heard the words of his guy, who's, who's, who's blaspheming God and saying that, that you can't save us, God. Maybe God's heard those words. Hezekiah was hoping that God would have heard those words and would come to defend Israel for his own sake. This is reminiscent of another battle which was fought time earlier when there was a huge Philistine that stood 
and came against the armies of Israel and defied the armies of Israel and says, I defy the, the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And the Bible says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This was the giant who we call Goliath. He came out and he said, I defy all of you. I defy your armies. I defy your God. Send me someone out to fight and let's, let's get this thing done. So day after day after day, they didn't send anyone out because they were all too scared. But then the young lad comes forward, saw what was going on, and says, how can you guys let this thing go on? This guy's defying the armies of the living God. There is only one God that lives, and he's defying, he's defying God and us. So he came to him, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 17.45, that David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defied. David came against Goliath because Goliath had said something against his God. And he knew God defends his honour and he defends his name. He had no fear because David's first heart, David's first concern was not himself. He was facing a guy that was three times taller than him. He wasn't concerned about himself. He was concerned about the glory of God. He was concerned about his God. And he knew that if he went out for his God, that God would be with him and would go before him. David was concerned for God's honour. And this is what Hezekiah was also concerned about. Hezekiah thought, if God's heard that guy, if God has heard that this guy is defying him to his face, maybe God will come and save us for that reason. Let's look at verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall ye say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send the blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumour, and shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Well, that's good news, isn't it? God's saying, I am going to come and intervene. He's saying, don't worry about what this guy's telling you. I'm going to come and sort it out. You see, the other beautiful thing about this whole thing is when, when the king sent word to Isaiah, he not only asked him for prayer okay, on his behalf, he also asked for a word back from God. So he sought the word of God in, his, in what he was going to do. You see, we have the benefit of all these words recorded for us. So there's two things you need to understand. When you come against a battle, when you come against a situation that you don't know, first thing is to come to the Lord in prayer on your knees. And the second thing is, go to his word. Because oftentimes, his, his answer will be right there written down for you. And it will be sometimes as plain as the, as the nose in your face. And this is what Hezekiah did. He wanted a word back from God, and Isaiah was the prophet of God, and he brought him back that word. So he says, don't worry, I'm taking care of this. I'm going to send this guy back to where he belongs, and he's going to fall over there by his own sword. But let's have a look at what happens. So Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna. So something else was going on. For he had heard that he was departed from Lachish. 
When he heard, uh, when he heard say of uh, Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia, behold, he has come out to fight against uh, thee. He sent messages again, again unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God, in whom thou trustest, deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them from which my fathers have destroyed? As Gozan and Haran and, 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 and Rezef and the children of Eden, which were in uh, Thalsala? Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of a city of uh, Sepharvim and Hena and Eva? And Hezekiah received the letter at the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So at this point, Hezekiah must have wondered, is this what God's promising? Is this what God's doing? Yeah, Rebshikah uh, went back, noticed that, that the king was fighting other wars. He had a few other issues to contend with, the king, of, the king of Ethiopia and a few other wars that were going on. But at the same time, Rebshikah sends a letter back to Jerusalem. And says, don't think because these other little wars are going on that your God's going to get you out of this trouble. These are nothing to us. We're going to finish these guys off and we're still coming for you. Don't think that this is an answer that God has, God has given you. So what does Hezekiah do? What does he do with this letter? He does once again the same thing he did before. He brings it back to the Lord. And the Bible says that he, lay, he comes back in, the, in the God's house and he lays the letter out for God. Hezekiah shows a wonderful resilience and consistency in his walk. He may not have understood what was fully going on here. Was this God's answer or wasn't this God's answer? It didn't seem as if God was answering his original prayer since Rebshika was still threatening to overtake Jerusalem. But Hezekiah persisted in prayer. He persisted in going back to God. And the message from that is, the Bible, as the Bible says, pray without ceasing. Continue to pray. Jesus gave us a parable about that, about, about the widow who, who came back to the judge because something was going wrong in her life and she kept on going back until she wore him out and he answered. And Jesus says, if, if that ungodly person, that ungodly judge eventually gives in, won't God actually answer your prayers who cares for you and loves you? If you're not sure what's happening, and sometimes we pray for long periods of time, and we don't know whether God's hearing us, we don't know whether God's answering, what he's doing in the background. If you're not sure, what should you do? Persist. Pray. Persist. That's what God wants you to do. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, just as a quick side note. Ephesians 6, 18 says, Praying always. Is that not always or is that sometimes in your Bible? What have you got? What have you got? Which version are you reading? As always, it's good, the King James says always. With all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, 
How clearly do you want God to tell you this thing? Pray always. Pray for everything in the Spirit. Watch with all perseverance. In other words, keep an eye on what's going on. The devil will always look for an angle to come in at. Be aware. Watch what's going on with your relationships. Watch what's going on in church. Look for the people around you that are suffering, that you may need to help. Keep an eye out for what's going on. Look at your own walk and say, am I walking the way God wants me to walk? Am I making the right decisions based upon his truth and his word? Keep a look at always, but always pray. Always pray. Go back to 2 Kings 19 with me. Let's see what Hezekiah prayed. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear, and hear, open, Lord, thine eyes, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which has sent him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of this land, out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. Who was Hezekiah more concerned about? Was he concerned about his his own life? He's praying to God and saying, God, if you deliver us, the, the, the kingdoms of this world will know that you are God. Do it for your sake. What a prayer. What's he praying for exactly here? What's his prime motivation for making this request? It's... The Lord's own namesake that he's praying for. It's for God's glory that he is seeking this salvation. His main purpose for praying was not just that he and his people would be saved, but that God would be glorified through that salvation. Can I ask you a question? Why do you think God saved you and I? Do you think that he saved you because you're something special? Do you think that... that we, there is something good in us that God, that God somehow said, oh, wow, look at Frank. Wow, that guy's amazing. I'd better save him. The Bible says there was absolutely nothing good in us. The Bible says that our, our righteousness and everything that we thought was wonderful about us was like a filthy rag that was thrown on the ground. Nothing that was good in us. So why did God save me then? Yeah, the Bible says that he loved me. But you know something? Not because I deserve to be loved. But because God chose to love me. And why did God choose to love me? Because through that love, the universe will find out what a loving and awesome God he actually is. And the universe will see the grace of God and he will be glorified through it. You see, you know, the one thing that's most important to God is his glory. You might say, well, that's a bit strange. Isn't that a bit selfish? Yeah, for us it would be. When you're a perfect being, when you're perfect in every possible way, when you are the author of life and all of life depends on you, 
when you are the, the, the center of all of creation, when you are the source of all good, then you deserve to be glorified. And if you're not glorified, Jesus said, even the stones would cry out. You know, God made us to worship. Have you ever heard that before? We are beings that were created to worship. We were created with, it, with an, an intense desire to follow something. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered why people follow um, the, you know, the movie stars? Ever wondered why people follow celebrities? Well, we have people called celebrities and people are so infatuated with celebrities because we have a desire to worship. We have a desire to hold up. Why do people worship their careers, their sports? Why do people worship the myriad of things that we see before us? Do you know why people worship? It's because we have an innate desire to worship it's that hole that's missing over here. And you know something? God's made us like that. But you know who he made us to worship? It was him. He's the missing piece in that, in that worship. And when we worship everything else or anything else, the Bible says that we are worshipping an idol. But God made us to worship him. And in worshipping him, he finds his glory. And we find our fulfillment. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Just so you understand, just so you're clear. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Now we have an inheritance, we have a salvation that is in Jesus Christ. And it tells us in verse 11, in whom also... We obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted Christ. Okay, you got that? So we were saved, we're given an inheritance, that in order that God would get the praise of his glory. Okay? Verse 13, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. All of these things are for the glory of God, you see. In the end, God will hold us up as his children, the ones that he's redeemed from hell itself. And he'll hold us up for the rest of, it, of the angelic world and the universe to see and say, look what I did. Look at that. I took these guys and I fashioned them and I made them perfect. And now they're mine. And I'm forever wedded to them. You were saved. You were given an inheritance in heaven for the glory of God. Not because you deserved it and not that you ever will. You and I still do not deserve the love of God. We still do not deserve anything else that he gives us. But because he chose to love us, he chose to, to pour out his grace upon us, the Bible says that in the end, the whole universe will see and applaud 
and see what God has done. So turn with me to verse 20. 2 Kings 19 verse 20 as we continue. And let's look at God's response to King Hezekiah's prayer. And it says, Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at thee. That's, that's at Sennacherib. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high? Even against the Holy One of Israel. God basically says to him, My people have shaken their heads at you. They've dismissed you. And you know why? Because you've actually raised your voice against me. You haven't just raised your voice against them. You have raised up your voice. You've exalted yourself against the Holy One of Israel, which is me. Hmm. Do you get the impression that God is somewhat displeased with Sennacherib? Verse 23. By thy messengers thou hast reproached the Lord and hast said, With the multitude of my chariots I am come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the tall cedar trees thereof and the choice fir trees thereof. I will enter into the lodgings of his borders and into the forest of his Carmel. This is God saying that he knows what's in Sennacherib's heart. He knows what Sennacherib's got in his head and he's saying, Sennacherib, I know what you're, what you're thinking. I know what's in your heart. Let me tell you exactly what you're thinking. In verse 24, you're thinking, I have digged and drunk strange waters. In other words, I've, I've, I've been all over the place. I've gone to waters here, there and everywhere and I've taken them all over. And with the sole of my feet have I dried up all the rivers of besieged places. Look at God's response to Sennacherib. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it? And of ancient times that I have formed it, now have I brought it to pass that thou shouldest be to lay waste fenced cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops and as corn blasted before it be grown up. But I know that... Listen, I'll just stop there for a sec. God says to Sennacherib, I know that you've got all these... You're, you're so proud because you've, you've taken after city after city and you've said, I've been here and I've been there and I've dried up the wells with all, with all my conquerings. And God says, but don't you know something? Don't you know that it was me that actually allowed you to conquer those cities? I opened those doors for you. And that all the cities around you and all the nations around you were weak and were like grass because I allowed them to be like that. But look what he says to him now in verse 27. He says, but I know thy abode. You know what that means? I know where you live. Ever had that said to you before? That's a scary thing. You know someone says to you and they don't like you? I know where you live, mate. God just said that to Sennacherib. I know thy abode. I know where you live. And thy going out and thy coming in. And your rage against me. In other words, I know where you live. I know when you go out. I know when you get back home at night. And I know what you're thinking in your heart against me. 
And look at verse 28. Because I rage against me and thy tumult has come up into mine ears, therefore I will put my hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way by which thou camest. So God says, listen to me. You might, be, you might think you're it in a bit. You may have conquered all these lands. But let me tell you something. Not only do I know where you live and when you go out and when you come in, but I'll tell you what, you've come to my people over here, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a hook in your nose. You know those big bulls? Have you seen a big bull with a, with a ring in its nose? And they can, they, you, can drag, you can drag it wherever you want to go with a string. And God says that, that's what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to put a ring in your nose, and I'm going to actually lead you all the way back home, the same way you came to this place. So if you're thinking that you're taking Jerusalem, think again. There is nothing that takes God by surprise. There is nothing that's too difficult for him. He is in charge and he determines the places and the times of men and of all nations. You know something? Assyria was the superpower of the world. The undefeated superpower of the world. But God knew exactly when Snacker would come up, when Assyria would come up, which were the nations that were going to be around them, how they were going to destroy them, how they are going to grow, and how they are going to be defeated. In Acts chapter 17, don't turn there because we don't have the time, but God says, God hath made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though that he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood, all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined, now listen carefully, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. You know what that means? God knew exactly every nation and every boundary of every city and every country and state and, and throughout the whole of history. And you know, you know what? He's determined it. God says, that's in my control, not yours. So every city and every country, every boundary you see here, God set those boundaries. Now let's see, let's close, let's wrap it up. Let's see what the rest of God's message to Hezekiah. Verse 29. He says this now to Hezekiah, and this shall be a sign to you, Hezekiah, to thee. You shall eat this year such things as grow of themselves, and the second year that which springeth to the same, and the third year... Um, sow ye and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruits thereof and the remnant that is escaped out of the house of Judah uh, shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward for out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant and they shall escape out of Mount Zion the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this okay what does that mean does that make it a bit confusing he's basically saying year one two and three God's giving the plan of exactly what they're going to do remember uh, Sennacherib had taken most of the land around Israel most of the land, okay? So most of the farms, most of those areas have already been taken by, by Sennacherib and Assyria. So God's saying, okay, Hezekiah, learn this. In the first year, in the second one, you're not going to get a chance to grow your crops again as you did before, okay? You're going to grow, you're going to pick whatever is growing naturally. But in the third year, you're going to get all your lands back. All your lands are going to come back to you and you're going to plant your own vineyards and you're going to... Uh, uh, reap your own crops and whoever's in Jerusalem is going to live. 
Verse 32. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. God repeats the promise about Sennacherib and, and declares that he will defend the city for his own sake. And interestingly enough, he says for the sake of David. Why for the sake of David? Because God made a covenant with David. God made a promise to David. And God always keeps his promises for his own sake. And look what happens. This is the amazing part of this whole thing. There's an army of 185,000 soldiers outside of their door. And look what happens overnight. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Isn't that freaky? Can you imagine? You go to bed at night, you wake up in the morning, and nothing's going on. It's all quiet. Why isn't there any movement? Why aren't, why aren't they having breakfast? Why, why isn't there there's, there's the smoke of fires going on? Why isn't there movement? Why aren't they coming against us? And you look and you start to send out people and they look and they say, they're dead. The whole lot of them are dead. 185,000 men are wiped off. Hundred eighty-five thousand in one night, and they didn't have to raise one sword. They didn't have to do one thing. They just went to sleep, and God took care of it. Look at verse thirty-six. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed. What do you want him to do? He's lost that whole army there. He's not going to be laying any siege against Israel. He departed, went, and returned, and dwelt in Nineveh. He went back home. And it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the house of uh, Nisroch, his god, that Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, smote him with a sword. And they escaped into the land of, of Armenia, and Esahan, Esahadon, his son, reigned in his stead. Snacker goes back home, says, oh, I'm done over here, I'm not going to win this one. He goes back home and while he's worshipping his God, his own sons kill him. That's a pretty intense story. You know one thing you need to take away from the story? One is there is nothing, absolutely nothing that your God cannot do. And that when the devil comes against you and I with his armies, when he comes against us with his taunts and he taunts us and he tries to cause doubt into our, in our minds and discourage us, understand the enemy of your souls is no match for the king that you have. He is no match for the God who has already defeated him. Had any threats the devil lately? Had any taunts in your own life? Maybe he's saying to you, you can't be forgiven. Maybe he's saying to you, you can't be a Christian. 
Maybe he's saying things will never change in your life. Maybe your prayers are useless. Maybe you're not good enough. I need to remind you that the devil is a liar. He cannot beat God. The Bible says that if we would humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face, that God will win the victory for us. Just like Sennacherib, the devil cannot take God by surprise. And God will uphold every promise that he's made to you as his child. The Bible says that if he's promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you, who do you believe, the devil or him? You believe God because he says he will never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible says that he's made you an ambassador to this world. Who do you believe, the devil or God? The Bible says that you are a priest and a king unto him. Who do you believe? If you've given your heart to Jesus, if you know that you're saved and you've got the Holy Spirit in your heart, then I'll tell you now, do not let the devil get a foothold in your life. Even though he may come against you like that guy at the wall and say, we're going to get you. He can't if you trust in God. Don't give up. Don't give in. If God can protect Jerusalem for the mightiest army in the world and knock it off in one night, he can win whatever battle that you're going through. You need to believe him. You need to trust him. You need to trust his word and that's where it begins. If God says to you, this is how it is, please trust his word and then do it. Trust and do. Trust and obey. And your faith will increase and you will find yourself stronger and more able to fight the battle. Remember, the battle belongs to the Lord. God bless you. Thank you.